Hey everybody, Craig here. Welcome to episode 27 of Think Relevance, the podcast. Uh, before we get started with this episode, which is, uh, for me at least, the long-awaited pedestal episode where we get to talk with Timmy Wald about the, this, uh, this new thing that we've just launched. I'm hoping to launch this episode, in fact, at the very moment that Timmy Wald and Stu Holloway are up on stage at Closure West um, announcing it and uh, letting the world know about what we've been working on. So I was excited to, uh, to have this conversation with Tim about some of the whys and wherefores. And uh, Anyway, you'll, you'll hear about that in the show. Um, before we get started, I want to mention one thing, which is um, if you happen to be in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, Tuesday, March 26th, uh, 2013, um, you should come on down to the newly revitalized Closure DC Meetup. Uh, you can find out more information about it and RSVP at meetup.com slash Closure DC. Uh, but basically, it's just, you know, casual gathering. Uh, there's going to be people with all ranges of experience there. If you're a beginner, totally welcome. If you've never done any Closure, it'd be great. All the way through people who have built, you know, multiple production systems with Closure. So I think it'd be a really good chance for... Um, for people to come on down and just uh, talk closure for an evening. And uh, if you come on down, Relevance will buy you some pizza. So, um, like I said, check that out on the, on the website, meetup.com slash closuredc. I will certainly be there and hope to see you there. Um, yeah, I think that'll do it. I'm, like I say, I'm really excited for this episode, so won't keep you any longer. We'll launch right into it. But before we go, we'll say thanks for listening. Welcome, everybody. To, uh, this is Think Relevance, the podcast. Today is Friday, March 8th in the year 2013. And today, as our guest, we have my very good and friend, a very good friend of a long time, uh, Tim Ewald. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks, Craig. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're uh, actually super excited about this episode. We'll get into why in a minute. Uh, first, though, you got to call the intro music. What are we playing on the way in? Oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Should have warned you. You should have warned me. Sorry. What kind of things do people think? Are we recording now or? Yeah, we're recording. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. What's a, what What do most people pick? Uh, people pick songs that they like. I mean, people have picked everything from Gershwin to Motorhead, so all sorts of stuff. Uh, boy, I've been humming Ode to Joy for like days. I don't huh? know why, uh, okay. but it's been done to death, um, although it is a classic. That, we're going with that then. It's 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 either that or uh, anything off Darkness on the Edge of Town. So Tim, I know as a, as one of our architects, you are prone to deep analysis of the situation, and we have kind of an in joke where you say, "I'm torn," but I do yeah. have to ask you to pick one song. Is it? Okay? Uh, yeah, let, let's go with uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town. Okay, cool, awesome, uh, awesome. I uh, we'll get that one in. Um, cool. So. Like I said, we are very, very excited to talk to you. I mean, I have a bunch of reasons, really. One is, like I said, we are good friends. We've known each other for, you know, I don't know, 15 years, and we've worked together almost that whole time, right? 
Uh, yeah, I think it's four companies now. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, 15 years sounds right. If it's more than that, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> exactly. Um, but the thing that I would like to focus on today, at least at first, and we can jump off into other areas later, uh, is so I'm going to try to, I mean, today is the 8th of March, but we got Closure West coming up in about uh, a week and a half from when we're recording this. And at Closure West, you are going to present on something we've been hinting at on the on the podcast and talking about to a couple people, uh, namely Pedestal. And I'll ask you to define what that is in a minute. So I'm going to try to put this episode out pretty close to right after you've given that that speech, um, that talk, that presentation, um, where we unveil Pedestal. And so um, I'd like to kind of, for those that can't be at Closure West or who saw it and when we want to hear some more, um, I want to really dive into that today. So uh, you've had a huge hand in pedestal. Maybe you can just, um, I don't know, walk us through. First of all, what is it? Like what, what people hear us talk about, what exactly is pedestal? So pedestal is uh, a set of libraries. Um, some people might call it a framework, although we, we try not to use that word. Uh, but it's a set of libraries for building uh, rich browser-based applications and uh, back-end services that they interact with uh, entirely in Clojure. So Clojure script on the front end, uh, Clojure on the back end, uh, Eden on the wire in between. Right. Um, and <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. Uh, we, we have a bunch of ways to do those things right now. So I guess a follow-on question would be, why are we, because this is very much a relevance effort, right? You maybe you can talk about that too. Why, why are we doing this? So um, I, I think there's a couple reasons. Um, but first, yeah, I agree. There, there's, there's, uh, any number of technologies that can be used um, to build these kinds of systems. Uh, so why are why are we making one? Um, so there's a couple reasons. The first one is we really like building stuff in Clojure. And um, we've worked on a range of uh, projects with customers and some internal stuff that uses the existing uh, Clojure libraries and ecosystem um, to, to build applications and services like this. And we've run into um, issues that we wanted to address, right? So we, we needed some parts that, uh, or some, some pieces that we felt uh, sort of clicked together better and offered some functionality that um, existing libraries didn't have. Um, so it, if nothing else, I mean, we are doing this because uh, we want to build, using this technology, we want to build these kinds of systems ourselves. Um, there's an interesting aspect of that question is, uh, or another aspect of that question is, uh, I, I do think that there's a, a genuine advantage in uh, working in one language end to end. So, so obviously there are a lot of libraries for doing JavaScript-based front ends that might interact with a back end written in something else, be it Clojure or uh, Ruby on Rails or any number of other things. And um, I think as we, the, the, there's a real advantage to having one technology that spans uh, the whole system end to end in terms of the tools you might use for development and for testing, the ability with Clojure and ClojureScript to uh, cross-compile code, um, those sorts of things. So I think beyond our own just, hey, we like Clojure and want to do it this way, th there are some real concrete benefits to um, working in a unified stack. A, a good example that we can talk about uh, more as we go is that the application model that Pedestal uses for browser-based applications separates um, the logic of the application and its information model from the rendering. And the logic and application model can be built entirely in Clojure and actually developed uh, 
anywhere, right, using the same set of tools you'd use for normal closure development, and then dropped into uh, the browser to execute there with a rendering layer that's written in ClojureScript. So um, the behavior and the information model would cross-compile into ClojureScript. So you get those kinds of benefits when you work in a unified stack. Right. Yeah, and that's key. And, and we'll, uh, we, we're going to have to spend some time talking about uh, that in more detail. Uh, I, I mean, you mentioned that's one of the benefits. What are some of the other? Because I agree. Like, I love it when I get to work on a project where, you know, all of the pieces play nicely together. What are, what are some of the other benefits there that, that you're going to realize with, uh, with a unified stack, as you say? So there's some interesting things. Um, you know, the, so we mentioned cross-compilation of, of kind of the core logic of a, a browser, what ultimately would be a browser-based application. Uh, there are some other interesting possibilities. I mean, you can use cross-compilation for any number of things. So we have the opportunity to build some libraries that uh, we could potentially use both on the server as part of a service and in the browser as part of an application. Um, one of the directions that might go, that, so an interesting challenge in, uh, in building browser-based applications is that um, the, they, by definition, uh, operate outside the trust boundary of a typical environment. That is, you're putting your application code into a space that anyone can see. They can peel back the covers. They can use the developer tools in Chrome or in Firefox to see everything about your code. You're giving them all of it. They can see all of the communication. And so, um, that presents an interesting uh, challenge in that, uh, so if you have untrusted code that's executing logic and, and or untrustable code uh, that's executing logic, and I, I should back up, it's untrustable because people can see what it's doing and emulate it or potentially just manipulate it, sure. uh, change it to do something else. So, um, so you have the problem that, uh, you know, if you make a decision in the browser and want to communicate back to the server that it the outcome of that decision, you have a choice about what you send. So imagine, you know, an event happens in the UI, application logic in the browser makes a decision and it updates the screen. And then it's got to send something to the server. It can send the result of the decision. Um, it's very difficult for a server to know whether that's acceptable or not. So if the logic said, we're going to uh, give Craig $1,000 and that's communicated to the server, does the server know, how does the server know um, that that was an acceptable effect of whatever logic executed? I want you to know it's always acceptable to give me $1,000. <laughs> give me $1,000, yeah. I'm sure it is. So, um, I, you know, it, realistically, I think in, in for a lot of problem spaces, uh, you need to, in fact, send um, not the side effect or the decision made about an event. You, you need to send uh, information about the event itself. And so the server... Uh, can make a decision. And so you, you're you going to get into this um, situation where, you know, there's logic running in the client and you want it there for, for fast response times for the user. On the other hand, you want logic on the server to be secure and correct. And so um, certainly using a single stack, a single technology stack gives the option of writing logic and perhaps deciding uh, where it should be and moving it from one side to another. Um, one possibility uh, right, is that um, that core behavior engine that defines your application, um, that significant chunks of it, or perhaps all of it, could run on the server, but still render uh, incrementally into the browser. Um, so kind of, you know, what we're exploring here is what are the, um, like, 
a lot of single page apps tend to, uh, you know, they <laughs> wind all the way back to a traditional website, right? The traditional website, we do everything on the server, uh, the, bit, the rendering logic storage. A lot of systems are attempting to take all of rendering and logic and put it in the browser. And one of the challenges of that is um, you can't trust logic that runs in the browser. So you need some logic on the server. But maybe you need all the logic on the server and just the rendering should be in the browser. You could build single page applications that way. Um, so I think there's a, there's a really interesting problem space to explore as we build more of these kinds of systems about how you make them efficient and responsive, but also secure. Uh, and how do you do it without having to rewrite uh, logic for checking the, the validity of decisions? Um, especially, you know, if you you are working, if you're working on a stack that's different languages, are you going to end up having to write logic twice? Or if you decide to move it from the browser to the server or vice versa, you're going to have to rewrite it. And so a big advantage of using one stack is we have uh, more leeway to um, shift those things around. That doesn't mean that, you know, it's just a flip, a flip of a switch to say <laughs> that we do this over here. Uh, but it gives us uh, the option to relocate some things. Um, and that, I think that it's going to turn out that um, that's pretty important. Hmm. Well, I think, um, you know, if you think about who are likely in that initial audiences, and, and actually this is a point I want to visit too, which is, um, you know, who did we build this for? Uh, let, but let's come back to that in a second. I, think, I don't think we're going to sell the people that are likely to adopt this initially on closure. I think the really interesting parts come into, you know, how this is different from what's there now. And you talked a lot of a little bit, this idea that, you know, we've really tried to make the pieces, I guess I'll use the word simpler, right? So that we can recombine them in various ways, separate logic from rendering, from uh, storage, et cetera. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, let's so let's actually back this up because I feel like we jumped right in and <laughs> right we, we said we sort of said oh it's a, it's a set of libraries but maybe you can give us you know fill in some of the details there like what what are the pieces how do they fit together why did we decide to I mean you talked about a little bit why I decided to do it why did we decide to open source it like, give us some of that level of a picture so um, well let's take those things uh, I guess in turn right um, so a little bit more of the shape pedestal. Uh, really divides um, into two parts, uh, services and applications. And so um, services, the, the main uh, abstraction or the main thing that services brings to the table is uh, an HTTP processing pipeline based on an abstraction called an interceptor. And you know the main motivation for building uh, the service layer was that there are various problems that we've tackled in projects that um, where we, we ran into uh, limitations of Ring. So Ring, obviously, um, for people in the who've been doing closure work, anything in the web with uh, with closure, know that Ring is the uh, kind of de facto standard for um, HTTP processing. And the great thing about Ring is that um, there's been a lot of investment in uh, code for implementing various HTTP-centric behaviors like cookies and sessions and uh, parameter mapping and all sorts of things. Um, and it's provided enough of a foundation that a lot of people have been able to go ahead and build all sorts of things on it. Um, there is a limitation with Ring, however, and that is that uh, its execution model is, is bound to a single thread. That is, Ring expects a thread to go through a series of function calls 
and uh, come out again. And uh, there's no ability to um, pause that execution or move it off that thread onto another thread. And that kind of functionality is really important if you want to be able to implement um, uh, any kind of long polling or server sent events or any kind of long running work on a web server where you don't want to hold the uh, actual uh, web server thread that was handling the HTTP request. You want to give it back, um, but keep the connection open, not, not send an HTTP response, and complete it at some point later. Um, so that's a thing that if you're going to do a lot of uh, browser-based applications, you're going to want ways to send notifications to them from servers. So you're going to need to have applications make requests that are long polled or basically park a call on the server, not consume a web server thread, and later on send events back to that client. Um, so the need for that functionality really pushed us to uh, build this interceptor uh, plumbing. And interceptors uh, conceptually are similar to ring middlewares in that they're pluggable pieces of code that provide some functionality related to processing an HTTP request, but they are different in that they are not intrinsically bound to a thread. So you can define a series of interceptors to go through, and uh, partway through, you can decide you're going to release the current thread and later on resume processing on some other thread. So, um, so that was the main motivation for service. The bulk of the service side is uh, retooling that plumbing to give you um, these different execution uh, policies or characteristics or however you want to put it. Um, it's worth noting that uh, we have worked really hard to keep interceptors uh, compatible with Ring in the sense that the data structures, the maps that we use to represent HTTP requests and responses within the interceptor pipeline are um, they are Ring requests and response maps. They're uh, completely compatible with Ring. Uh, further, we did work with um, the Ring uh, team to refactor the middlewares that exist in the Ring core distribution um, to take all of the functions that uh, assumed you were on a single thread and split them apart into functions that could put one for processing requests and one for processing responses. And we split them apart so they could potentially run on separate threads. Um, so having done that refactoring, that has been rolled into the official ring release. And uh, as part of pedestal, the pedestal service infrastructure, we provide interceptors that use those split apart functions. So um, we've tried really hard to make sure that anyone who's using the core ring middlewares, if they were to start using pedestal instead, uh, all of that middleware functionality that they're used to is still available. It's just been refit uh, to plug into this different execution model. So cookies and params. And... Cookies and sessions and params and flash and file info. And I've spent enough time looking at them lately that I might be able to name all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, they, they, uh, they're all there. So you know, the point being, I mean, as I said a few minutes ago, the investment in Ring is is substantial, and a lot of that is um, is really uh, you know valuable chunks of code that we want to use. Um, so our goal has been uh, by no means to replace Ring, but to provide uh, an alternate execution mode via interceptors that can uh, that can still leverage. Um, the investment people have in Ring, and they can use middlewares, and uh, all the Ring handlers can get plugged in. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, uh, we even have stuff. I mean, you'll probably get into this in a minute. But we even have stuff like um, 
uh, Linegan templates, Linegan, you know, you just need line new, whatever, and you get a, I get a project with this all set up for you. Yeah, um, we have we have tried hard to um, ease the on ramp. So yes, there are Linegan templates for creating one of these, and uh, you, there are um, kind of basic uh, routing and and uh, interceptor plumbing set up for you. Uh, you can of course change all of it. The templates are just a way to show you um, how to use the libraries, but uh, it's certainly not required. There's and we've we've uh, really tried to make uh, the obvious things that you would want to replace. Uh, pluggable, but you're always free to, you know, look at what the template does and then do something else. <laughs> right. Um, so that's really on the service side. Uh, on the client side, um, the the story is, uh, you know, we, there's a really really interesting problem in uh, in building rich um, applications, and I, I usually kind of explain it in this series of steps. Um, and it, it goes like this, uh, you know, if you imagine a, a really complicated application, like a, a desktop application, or um, I don't know, what would be a good example of something that's, uh, that's significantly complex, like um, that you were trying to do in uh, the DOM. Um, obviously, Gmail's like reasonably complex, but let's say you're going all the way, right? You're going to implement uh, you know, pages or Word or a full-on word processor, you mm -hmm. know, with all kinds of screens, et cetera. Um, so I think at this point, everyone realizes you can't, you can't just say, uh, I have a DOM that's the current state of the screen in the world, and an event happened, and I handled it in JavaScript, and that JavaScript function is going to make all of the changes necessary to the DOM to get to the new place. Um, if you try to do that in, in individual event handlers, uh, you just get a mess really, really soon. So you need some kind of model uh, that's not just, hey, my event handlers um, uh, party on the DOM. And I mean, that's, that's a pretty, I would argue that is the significant change from when, when we talk about applications, we use that term to differentiate them from sites, where a lot of sites download pages that have, um, you know, very modest amounts of script that do just party on the DOM because they're doing relatively simple things. But when you are not uh, constantly reloading a page and, and kind of rebuilding your whole world, um, then the number of cases that, or the number of possible situations or, or the possible states of the DOM that those event handlers have to deal with expands, uh, just, uh, it just explodes, right? So you, um, you need some other way to, to put shape around it. Um, so you, we know that you don't want to write really lengthy event handlers that say, well, let me go look and because this thing is here in the DOM, I have to add that over there, and then I have to change that guy's uh, style. And but because this thing was not a value over that, I have to add something over here, right? I mean, it's it just uh, is a mess. So um, so no one wants to write that code. So then you say, uh, all right, well, what if we started to add some shape to this, where we said uh, we maintain a separate data structure, which is kind of our application state, and the DOM is a projection of that. And, and now um, what I'll do is I'll have uh, JavaScript event handlers modify my state, and then I'll take my state and I'll update my projection. Uh, but I still have essentially the same problem, right? So I, I go to my underlying state model and I say, great, take the old state, give me the new state. And uh, now that I've got the new state, I have to walk up to the DOM and make it align with the new state. So 
one way to do that would be to, to do what we used to do with sites, which is kind of throw away the entire contents and recreate it. Um, that actually will work for a while, uh, but you know, at some point as, the, as it gets bigger, you know, you're going to get flicker and all of the kinds of side effects. Like it's going to feel more and more like you're reloading the page. Uh, and so what you'd really like to do is just change the parts of the DOM that need to be changed, but you have to figure out what those are. And the same way that you don't want to have to write the JavaScript function that takes an event and looks at the DOM and figures out what changes to make, you don't really want to write the JavaScript function that takes a, a new uh, arbitrary data structure, you know, the, the application structure behind the scenes, and tries to figure out what changes to apply to the DOM. So, um, so what do you do? Uh, well, the, the pedestal application model says, uh, you know, we're going to change, we, we are going to have a separate data structure, like the data model behind the scenes. Um, so that's kind of our, the, 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 um, the state that the logic of our application uh, operates on. And events coming from either the UI, like a mouse click or what have you, or events coming from servers, so a notification that came down the pipe from a, from a service on the back end, those events are going to get fed into that data model, and they're going to change it somehow. And then uh, those changes, at that moment when we have changed that thing, that's the place that we're going to figure out uh, what the actual deltas are. And so we're going to compare those data structures. And we have an advantage here using uh, ClojureScript because of persistent data structures and immutability, right? Any changes we make, we're, we're generating a new thing. And we have the old thing. So right. we can compare them easily. Right. And in comparing them, uh, we're going to generate a set of changes. And we're going to express those as changes to a, an application model. So we have the data model on the back end. Then in the middle, we have the application model. The application model is basically a tree. So we're going to say, you know, these changes to the data model resulted in these changes to the application model, but they are expressed not as a new application model, but as a list of deltas. And then we're going to feed that list of deltas out to the rendering code. And the rendering code is going to use that list of changes to change the DOM. And so instead of ever having to write a single function that says, I got this new state, let me figure out what's update on the screen. Instead, we're going to feed out like 20 deltas and we're going to have little tiny chunks of code that say, when I get this delta, I update this bit of text here, or I turn off that style, uh, or what have you. But they tend to be very, very small uh, changes. And it's the, the backing code in the application logic that decides um, here's the set of changes that, that should happen. It's worth noting, I, I want to be really clear, the set of changes are expressed in terms of the application model. So like uh, in the case of our chat client's um, sample application, you know, a change in the application model would be there's a new message. Uh, it's not there's a new div or a new table entry or whatever. That stuff's all handled in the rendering layer. Mm -hmm. But the rendering layer gets fed very small deltas. There's a new message. A message has been confirmed that it got to the server and came back. Uh, you know, a message has been deleted or whatever they are, but they're very small snippets of changes. And it means that the JavaScript code manipulating the DOM is really well factored out. Uh, and so you never have a, a, a giant uh, blob of, you know, 
I'm trying to take these two large data structures, understand the differences and understand the changes that I have to make. We do that way back when we applied it to the actual uh, data model at the kind of beginning of this flow back out to the client mm-hmm. or back out to the rendered screen, I should say. Yeah, I'm, I'm nodding. It's a podcast and I'm nodding. I mean, I've gotten a chance to, <laughs> I should know better. I've gotten a chance to see this several times in the, oh my goodness, close to a year. That, and so this, I sh- we should mention too that um, uh, although this has been a team effort, um, I think the client stuff, uh, if you had to pick one person who's responsible for it, it's Brenton Ashworth, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, Brenton was the the driving force behind um, behind doing that. Um, I I do want to say though. I mean, I, I've been trying hard to not. You know, there's a lot of people at Relevance who have worked on Pedestal on various pieces of it, um, including on the client. And so while you know, I, I got to give props to Brenton for um, that piece and to Stuart Sierra for the core design behind Interceptors. Um, Pedestal is really the uh, Know, the, the output of, a, of the relevance engineering staff as a whole. Yeah, actually, let's talk about that for a minute. I want to come back to the to the client stuff and to the server stuff as well, because there's a couple interesting things we haven't talked about there yet. But but you mentioned that it's been a team effort, and that raises uh, two questions I want to ask you. The first is, um, why on earth are we giving this away? Because I know how cool it is, right? I haven't actually worked much on it at all, but I've, got, I've gotten to see it several times. And this is, um, you know, I mean, let's 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 be sort of practical and say you know it's it's not it's not done it's not everything but it is really cool and it is a it is a pretty big deal in terms of developing these types of applications so why are we giving it away um so i think there's a bunch of reasons uh you know uh, <laughs> you, you could start with the altruistic um you know we like building stuff in closure which is open source we use closure libraries that come from the open source community and as we did in, in, with Ruby and Rails and any number of other things before. And, uh, you know, we take um, the relationship with open source very seriously. So uh, Relevance has a long record of, of contributing stuff back. And this is just kind of the latest thing in that, um, in that space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, the, <laughs> there are other reasons too, right? I mean, first, I would say um, anyone who thinks... Uh, I, I guess my take is like the <laughs> bringing out any kind of library for web application or service development today that is not open sourced is uh, it, it doesn't have a hope of success. Right. Right. I mean, no one, the days of paying license fees for these things or even being restricted in any way in, in their use is, is long since uh, gone. Uh, so I don't. I actually don't think there's much of an issue, even if you even if you are inclined to. Which uh, it, I'm sorry, there's not much of an option. Rather, even if you are inclined to do something else, um, these kinds of tools, uh, if they're gonna if they're gonna go anywhere, um, in a broad sense, uh, need to um, be open sourced. Uh, and I think the you know the, the go anywhere. It, <laughs> it's interesting. Like at some level, if these tools exist for uh, us to do the work that we do at Relevance and, and nothing else happens, um, that would be good, but, mm-hmm. but not great. I mean, I think we've, we've taken stuff to a point based on our experience working on a number of projects. Um, and it's funny, like, so, you know, people have asked me, what, what do you see as next for Pedestal? And there are a few things that we want to do. Um, you know, we have a list, but uh, I think it, 
we built this stuff based on experience working on a range of projects and some of the problems we encountered using the libraries that we that were available at the time. Um, and I think we've addressed a lot of those issues in doing this. Uh, but at some point, you got to go back to the well, right? I mean, right. I, what is the next set of problems that are, we're really going to find? Well, I don't want to just go back to the relevance well. I want to go back to the, you know, everyone who's doing this kind of work. So I think a big benefit of, of putting this out in the world, besides just it's the it's the right thing to do and you don't really have a choice anyway, uh, is, you know, we want input from other people working on the things they're working on to see whether, um, you know, the models that we're proposing with Pedestal uh, resonate and you know are there does it solve their problems if it doesn't you know what can we do to to help um, so I think there's for pedestal to uh, evolve and grow and be sort of more generally useful and get better um, we we want more input into it than just um, you know hey what are the things that we're doing with it sure. so I think that's another big benefit of of putting it out in the world right well, what, so, I mean, that, that, and I, that's awesome. I, I, the other thing I wanted to know was kind of what has our engineering effort been like and what point has it gotten us to? Cause I, you know, people have been hearing us go, oh, we're working on pedestal, we're working on pedestal for a while now, but I don't know whether people have a sense of how much time and energy we really have put into it. Maybe you can give us an idea there. Yeah. You know, I haven't really added up sort of numbers in terms of person days or person weeks or what have you. I mean, it's something that, um, ideas about were, were people were percolating in people's heads um, as we were tackling problems in, in various projects. I think really building out the first version of Pedestal um, came, uh, it started back in, I want to say, around Halloween of last year, so 2012. Uh -huh. And uh, we had a fair number of people working on it then through about Thanksgiving. And then um, things have sort of quieted down a bunch. And then this, this spring, we've been uh, spending a fair amount of time on it. At any moment in time, I think the most we've had in, consistently on it is uh, probably four or five people for some periods. Uh, lately, it's been two people. Uh, of course, we have 20% time at relevance. And so um, many people's Fridays have been, have been spent on it. Mm -hmm. So it's been an interesting challenge working with a team of two or three that expands to 14 one day a week <laughs> yeah. um, in terms of organizing the work. But um, so, you know, there's, uh, there's been a lot of effort that's put into it in, in terms of where we've gotten. Um, you know, I think it's a, it, it's the, the core functionality of the server, the plumbing um, and, and the basic app model. And uh, it's ironic that we're recording this before Closure West because I'm not sure what we're going to call this from a version number perspective. Um, we may put it out just as uh, as alpha because it's the first time anyone else is going to see it. Well, I'm I'm uh, quite happy with um, where we've gotten in terms of the quality of the of the code, and uh, you know it feels pretty solid to me. But I've been looking at it hard for quite a while now, so I'm I might not be the Right guy to judge that. Oh, oh, I mean, I think we, I think it's safe to say that we would absolutely use it ourselves on on projects for you know people that are paying us to do work. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, that, I think yeah, it's <laughs> it's very exciting to me. Um, just because, like you say, I know that a, a lot of people at Relevance have been involved um, in various forms um, for for a really it's been a really significant effort for us. I mean, like you say, who knows people hours, but. I mean, having been at the company for two and a half years now, I can't think of any other time where we ha we have where we have s devoted a, such a significant portion 
of the company to any single project in the same way, right? Not not in recent history. Yeah, but I think the the one that stands out to me as another example is the the work um, that various members of the company did to help with ClojureScript. Um, That's true. Yeah. You know, I, that was actually not too long after I joined the company, and I had other stuff I was working on, so I, I never got um, really deeply involved in that. But it really stood out to me as an example of uh, what we can do when we all kind of work in the same direction on on an open source project, and um, and just how much uh, fun it is, right? How much camaraderie there is in building something yeah. together. Yeah. Um, one of the challenges I, I feel at Relevance is, uh, you know, we have a great team of people, and but often we work on all sorts of different things. Um, and certainly this has changed a bit, but I mean, historically, uh, or at least in my time at the company, you know, early on there was, there was a lot of rotation between projects. And so you didn't get extended periods of time working with, uh, a couple of people. Um, and I, it's interesting cause I think that's really, um, key, you know, extended periods of work with people is what really helps you become a team. Mm. Um, working on something more uh, complex and for longer uh, is just really beneficial in terms of gelling as a group. So one of the best things, you know, probably for me, the, the person that I've worked um, the most with uh, working on Pedestal has been Alex Reddington. And uh, it, it's been great, right, as an experience working with Alex. Um, I think we worked really well together, but I mean, just uh, you, you get a connection as, as part of a team. Like I would argue that Alex and I together now, um, at least from my perspective, we are more effective as a pair than I might be with someone else. Although I would say that about you too, Craig, because we work together a lot. Right. Um, but, you know, we know each other well enough now to understand uh, how we work and what our strengths, our relative strengths and weaknesses are. Um, and that's hugely beneficial. So that's another aspect of, the, of doing this work that I think has been really good. Yeah, I think we could do a whole show on rotation because right? <laughs> we, we debated internally a lot and you know, it's, it's, we've gone back and forth on the degree to which rotation is valuable and the costs and the benefits. And it's one of those, one of those kind of constant themes, but, um, maybe we'll save that one for another day. <laughs> so you asked a question a little while ago that I don't think we answered, which is, um, kind of who, who are we building pedestal for? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, so, so I have sort of two answers to that question. My pithy answer is, you know, we started by building it for us because we want to build systems like this using this tech stack. Um, but we, are giving it away. We also wanted to build it for uh, the the closure community uh, at large, um, and other folks if they're interested. Right? If, if um, some people look at especially the app side of things and say there's something pretty cool there, you know, will it encourage more people to embrace closure? Um, I don't know. I hope so. I mean, I think that would be interesting. Um, there are also interesting uh, possibilities uh, around projecting the client model out to folks who are. Um, working in just in JavaScript and not in ClojureScript. Um, those are those are things w that we're interested in exploring. Um, but the other answer to that question, who's it for, right, is th there have been a lot of conversations internally, uh, especially like we said earlier on, you know, there are other technologies that exist for doing this work, uh, this kind of work. And, you know, picking any technology you make, um, you know, you're going to make trade-offs. And... You know, one of the things that uh, I see and I think others see in the industry is that um, there's a lot of tools that really focus on how easy can we make this for uh, the person developing the app. So really optimize um, 
how easy it is for the developer. And uh, I don't want to suggest by, by going down this path that Pedestal is in any way aimed in the opposite direction, right? We want the system to be easy to use. We're not trying to make it as hard as possible for the developer? No, we're not trying to make it as hard as possible. Right. Um, however, uh, th there are things that, um, that uh, we want that, that you know, we're not going to let ease of use trump. So like, let's go back to talking about the service side for a second. So we have this interceptor processing model that is more complex than the ring processing model, there's no doubt. Um, we have done a lot to try to make it as, uh, as straightforward to use as we can, but it has more moving parts. It, it, it does more things. Um, we specifically built it to do those additional things, right? So there, there's, um, so I think that it's possible, like we are aiming this framework at people who um, want the kind of flexibility and, and power um, that we can get out of the platform that we sit on top of. And that's, you know, the JVM and, and Clojure as a language and ClojureScript as a language. We want it to be easy to use, but we're not going to um, uh, give up that flexibility. So like a, a great example actually of, of what this, uh, what this really means. Um, Stuart Holloway had a great example. He was explaining to someone in a, in a conversation about this. And uh, he used Rails as an example, right? The Rails environment has uh, an ambient database. So a database is just kind of there. You don't really have to think about it. Mm -hmm. And that's super easy because, hey, it's just there. You don't have to think about it. <laughs> um, but as soon as you need two databases or you need one database that's used by multiple Rails apps, mm -hmm. it's not super easy. Right, right. Right? Because it can't be ambient anymore. And a lot of that framework is designed with that ambient database idea kind of in mind and and it's and a lot of um people who work in that environment kind of expect it to be there and so you know i, I think it's a great example of uh a, a place that you know the, the creators of rails made a decision about something that they would simplify but it but i would argue it, it also is a limitation um and, you know, I, I'm in no way suggesting that they were wrong for the for what they were trying to achieve. It's just an observation. Sure. Um, and I'm also not trying to suggest that there are no such limitations in Pedestal. But I think that um, one of the things we want to see in, in uh, libraries and frameworks is, um, you know, the, the, the access to the amount of power that we need to build the things we want to build. So it's interesting, right, with, with, the, with the interceptor plumbing, allowing you to move work from one thread to another. Um, that's something that the underlying platform, the JVM environment has intrinsically um, and, and the web APIs there have had for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and in some ways uh, we're just trying to get access to that back again. Right. Ring, uh, you know, the, the execution model of ring took a different path in terms of uh, a simpler model to understand, but it gave up that capability. Um, so I think that, you know, some folks internally have raised the question of, are we trying with Pedestal? To, is, is the goal, you know, just ease of developer experience? Um, and it's a more nuanced question than that, because doing the really simplistic thing is easy uh, up to a point, and then it's really hard, mm -hmm. right? And so um, I think some people may look at Pedestal and say, you know, we'll switch to the client side now. They might look at the client and go, well, I don't understand. Why are there these three layers? And I don't feel like I need them. 
And in fact, you know, you can do away with some or you can simplify some, but we've done enough things to say, well, well, actually, if you, you know, in our experience, if you build out a kind of browser-based app, as it gets larger and larger, you're going to realize you need to do all of these things, or at least that's what we have realized ourselves. And so we want a framework that supports those things um, kind of out of the gate. Right. Right. And so um, I think I'm expecting that some people will look at this and say, wow, that's interesting, but it, it seems um, uh, complicated or, you know, it's just not as easy as it could be. Um, and and that's, <laughs> it's probably no doubt true. Um, but, you know, for some of it, there, there are some things that we would like to, I'm sure we'll get feedback and we'll try to make parts of it easier. Um, but there are some parts that we don't want to uh, compromise on because we don't want to lose the capability or the, or the, the flexibility that we um, know from experience ultimately we're going to need. Right. I mean, I think of one very easy example is, you know, you said uh, one of the big things we want to be able to do is um, with the client side stuff, at least, is to be able to write, um, you know, responsive uh, browser based applications that implies that requires long polling. Therefore, we wrote a server piece that has to have support for asynchronous requests and thread mobility. And, you, and that, Im, that implies like giving up certain things in terms of ease. You, there's, you know what I mean? Like there's no, at least none that we could find, there's no model that is, oh, here's, here's async and it looks exactly like ring. Right. I mean, I, it, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, you can't, um, you can't do that on ring without, you'd expect you'd have to have changes about how threads and call stacks work that went way down, 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 down through the layers, right? Well below ring. Um, so yeah, it's not going to happen. There, there is actually an alternative that, uh, we considered and discarded. And that was, you could say, I have one endpoint that's essentially synchronous blocking calls that goes through ring. And for any of my async stuff, I have a separate endpoint that handles SSE or, or long polling or web sockets or, you know, whatever I chose to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could certainly go that way. There are systems built like that. The, the interesting question you get to there, the complexity on that path is let's assume that you, you made a synchronous ring call and authenticated and you gave back a token, you know, a cookie or what have you. Um, it can get propagated up to that other connection, but now you need uh, code over there that's going to, uh, pull that apart and do something with it. So all the things that people do in ring middlewares to process requests and modify responses, uh, do you want to have other implementations of those things that um, exist in a parallel channel that has a different processing model than ring? Uh, and so you needed to tie that stuff in again. Um, and uh, you know there may be applications where you don't need that, in which case doing some other async thing is fine. There may be cases where the cost of doing that a separate way is not high, um, but you know, ultimately our conclusion in considering these things was uh, that we would rather have a system that was capable of doing uh, thread management at the level that the underlying platform is capable of. Um, it's easier to take that and treat it as a synchronous thing a la ring than the other way around. Mm-hmm. So that was really our goal. Right, right, right. Cool. Um, well, one of the things I wanted to to uh, let I mean, let's do this. Let's maybe loop back a little bit. I mean, we've we've spent a fair amount of time talking about 
<laughs> kind of switching between some of the low-level stuff and some of the high-level concepts. But I'd like to maybe come back and do one more pass at the low-level stuff, kind of fill in some of the gaps there, because there's a couple things we didn't talk about on the on the server side that I think are super awesome. Um, and I'm specifically referring to uh, linking and routing. I wonder if you could talk about those at all. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so one of the things that we built on top of uh, interceptors is uh, a request router. And I mean, the, the same way that uh, Ring is the, um, I guess Ring, I would argue, is the, the, the undisputed de facto standard for um, doing web work in Clojure. And then there's, there's a bunch of libraries that sit on top of it that you might choose to use to do routing of requests. Um, there's uh, uh, Composure, of course, is one of the is, is arguably the biggest one. There's Mustache, uh, there's Noir. Um, so, you know, obviously, one of the things we needed was uh, something that did the equivalent uh, on top of our interceptor plumbing. Um, but we, again, knowing from experience that um, with various projects, I mean, routing is only half of the story. If you if you are going to build anything that uh, is going to process HTTP requests. Um, well, maybe not anything. There's probably services for which you'll never need to generate a link from inside the application. But in a lot of cases, you need to be able to generate URLs that you know, uh, if you were to request them, they would route to the right place. And so one of the things we've done is build a, uh, a routing interceptor that takes a route definition uh, or a route table and a route table basically builds, uh, it's a hierarchical definition that builds up a set of uh, request paths and uses them, HTTP verb, um, host header, uh, if you want it to, particular HTTP scheme, if you want it to, uh, and maps requests onto an interceptor path that you can execute. So um, in general, you know, a request coming in goes through a series of interceptors that are kind of pre-routing uh, then go through the router. If it matches something, we extend the interceptor path to whatever was specified for that route. Um, and while you're executing a request and building a response, if as part of that response data, you need to include a link to, uh, to hand back to a client so they can, they can send another request, uh, you can do that by simply um, taking the name of the route and saying, give me an URL for this. Um, and that basically uses the exact same routing table to work out uh, what path would be required, depending how precise or specific you are in, in the information you send in as the basis for URL generation. Uh, the system can know whether to generate a, uh, a relative or an absolute URL and also a scheme relative. So um, you could have it emit URLs that, for instance, stay with HTTPS if that's what you're using or with HTTP if that's what you're using. I mean, that stuff's all just automatic based on what you pass into the to the URL for functionality. Mm -hmm. So that's a piece that um, that some of the other routing libraries don't have. Um, there's some other interesting differences in the in the routing infrastructure. Um, two or two big ones, probably. I, I, there's a whole list, but the <laughs> the two biggest ones are that um, the interceptor path that you're on is actually maintained in the context data that's passed through the interceptors. And that makes this entire thing dynamic. So one of the things with ring code is that you're making a decision when you when you uh, build up a ring pipeline or a ring chain, right? Um, you, you're, you have scopes that invoke other chunks of code. Um, so there's two things about that. One is you can't really change it after the fact. 
after you've made it. Right. Um, you're saying wrap params, wrap this, wrap that, and that's and then you're done. Right. Then you're yeah. done. And, and and further, anybody along the way uh, can't know where you're going. They know that they're in the middle of a path, or maybe the beginning of a path, um, and they know that they have a guy to send a call onto, but they don't know anything about him. And so um, the way that routing works in pedestal, you have, the way the interceptor paths work in pedestal, you have the ability to change the path you're on if you choose to. And that's actually what the router does. All he does is say, if I, <laughs> I'm partway down an interceptor path, the request match these criteria, associated with these criteria is a further interceptor path. I'm just going to take it and bang it onto the path I have and keep executing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's one part. The other part is uh, one of the things that the router does that, that um, other routing libraries uh, don't do is it, um, it puts into that overall context which route was selected. And that makes it possible to start writing interceptors that, for instance, um, know what your destination is. They know the handler function you're going to get to uh, or you're headed to. And they could, for instance, um, read metadata off of it and, and make some policy decision about what logic to execute. Right. So you could start to write interceptors that um, invoke behavior based on just a metadata marker you drop on a function if you need some characteristic. Right. Authenticated or whatever. Yeah, whatever it turns out to be. And um, I'm not, you know, I, I'm kind of up in the air about the extent to which I'd want to do that versus um, other possible approaches. But I think it's a it's a pretty interesting um, hook to have available right. and, and to use. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm excited about that because I've run into that that whole uh, linking and routing problem in, more than once. And uh, this, having seen what you guys have done, it this definitely looks like... Um, a world better solution than what I've what I've done in the past. Um, I, I want to talk for a minute about, uh, and I think this will maybe get to some of what the other things I wanted to ask is. Um, can you walk us through like what the development experience is? I mean, so so someone comes back from Closure West or like, or or they see your talk and they download the bits, and they're like, okay, uh, now I'm going to go and do something with this. Can you can maybe talk us like concretely what someone would what someone's going to see or what they get or what they like, what they do, like what, you know, is their documentation? Do you run commands? How does it, how's that going to work at first at least? Yeah. So, um, there is documentation. Uh, we are, um, working really hard to get that. (laughs) It's good. (laughs) You know, the best documentation we can for, um, for the release, um, as, as we speak. Um, I think, uh, there, there's, I, I kind of envision two ways to get started. Um, we, we touched on templates already. The system does have uh, two Linegan 2 templates, one for building services and one for building apps. And uh, both of them will emit you know, a service in an app that uh, you can load in a REPL and, and start them up and they go. Um, they're hello world type things, but they have the basic environment around you. So um, you're definitely not, it, it doesn't, this, <laughs> You don't start it like file new. Um, you right. can if you like, right? But you don't have to. So, uh, you know, if you were getting started with services, you would probably make a, an instance of the template, um, start it up, and then just go in and start, uh, you know, tweaking routes, adding handlers, playing with it to get a sense of how it works. Similarly for the client. Um, so, you know, you get a basic client that has some data that, that ends up in the UI, and, you know, I would start manipulating that. Uh, if you were less inclined to just start experimenting, um, we are shipping a, a sample application that's a chat server and client. 
Um, the nice thing about chat is it's a problem domain everybody understands. Uh, the implementation is simple, both on the client and the service, and uh, it demonstrates pretty much all the pieces of both sides. And so um, it's a really good place to start in terms of uh, there's instructions that come with a chat sample about how to how to start it running. Um, and you know, just looking at that code and understanding the pieces going back and forth, uh, and walking through how it works is uh, is also a good way to get a sense of what pedestal style applications are like. Mm -hmm. And and uh, you said something interesting, which is that there's a a line template. So you're going to say line new pedestal server, line new pedestal app. Those are two. Yeah, it's, it's uh, pedestal service and okay. pedestal app. But okay. yeah. So you're, That's exactly right. but there's two things like, and, and, and they're really separate. And I thought one of the interesting things about working with pedestal was, you know, we talked about breaking things apart. Like we had rich on the show and he said, well, one of the key things of design is, can you break things apart? And, and, and to me, one of the things that was really enabling was the degree to which, although the pieces work together, that the, the client, the app part is really separate. Like you don't need the server to be running to work on that thing. I wonder if you could talk about that experience and some of the some of the implications and some of the decisions that led there. Yeah, so um, it's a great point. Yes, applications and services are really separate. Often when people think about them, like in the case of the chat application, you need both to, <laughs> to, to, to provide the experience. Mm -hmm. So they feel like they're one thing. Um, but they certainly don't, uh, they aren't built that way. So in development, you can, uh, for instance, the chat client has um, uh, a services component that can talk to the real server, but it has a mock services component that allows you to run standalone and work on the UI as if you were working on a live system in use. Um, so similarly on the server side, you can uh, build that piece independently. And um, one of the great things <laughs> that I like of uh, about HTTP-based interfaces, you can actually test the whole thing with curl. Mm -hmm. So you can run a curl command that, that opens, um, it uses server sent events as its way of distributing messages. Uh, so you can run a curl command that opens an SSC channel and just waits for messages to arrive and then a separate command to post them. Um, one interesting thing about that separation is you get the immediate benefit when you encounter a problem with debugging. Like uh, I was helping... Um, Lake the other day, and he had run into a problem. And the question was, is it in the server or the client? It's really easy to verify the server from the command line uh, and know which side the problem are, uh, arises in. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and actually, I, maybe you're about to mention this, but okay. I mean, I you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing your presentation at, at Closure West um, because I think one of the really cool things that we're going to that we by the time this airs will have shown. Hopefully, I'm not putting the lie to anything, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you're you're setting my agenda for me. That's okay. <laughs> I'm gonna say it, and then if it turns out not to be true, we'll cut it right out. <laughs> the magic of podcasts. But one of the really neat features that we've shown off internally is in the client, like you do a bunch of stuff, and then there's a dev mode where you can go, oh yeah, let's just go backward and forward through history. Yeah. So that we didn't really touch on that with. Um with the rendering piece, but we talked about the fact that the application logic sends deltas to the rendering layer and you can record and step backward and forward through those deltas. So what you're, what you're doing is uh, you have the ability um, in a sense to, to uh, debug rendering on a, uh, 
on a delta by delta basis and understand how the information you're feeding the rendering layer is changing the UI. So your ability to kind of fast forward and rewind through the rendering process is, um, is super useful in pinpointing uh, rendering bugs. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I think people are going to be really, either, yes. I, that's one thing I think people are going to go, okay, I want that. Yeah, agreed. Because I want that. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to the separation deployment thing, one thing we, we uh, haven't talked about, and uh, this is going to come out of Closure West as sample code, but ultimately will get integrated, is, um, is support for cores. Mm -hmm. So because we have an application Sorry, that... Can you deref the acronym for people? <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the, the uh, standard for how you um, enable uh, cross-origin uh, requests from scripts. Mm -hmm. So um, the browser's origin policy says any script you're running in an app can only go back to the server that it came from uh, unless you are using cores to indicate um, that a cross-origin uh, call is all right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the bits that are coming out of Closure West, um, out of the box, uh, like cores is not uh, deeply integrated. There is a core sample that shows how to do it. Um, we will be putting that into the plumbing proper. Um, so the uh, the uh, yeah, so the model right now, I mean, with the with the ignoring the core sample, um, you need to get the, the like the application has kind of a I think of it as a bootstrapping page that pulls in all of the JavaScript and CSS and whatever else you need, and so you need to get that off of the uh, off of the server where uh, a service lives. And so um, during development, and the instructions for doing this are actually in the chat sample uh, readme, we often set up the service side uh, to have a resources direct directory that's symlinked to the output of the client side. And so that lets us uh, use the client dev tools on one port and then hit the production or the, the, the service side uh, server on another port and load the app so it can talk to that service. Um, you could do the same thing in production, and it's worth noting that all you have to have with the service is the bootstrap page. So, for instance, in one of our demos, we've loaded the bootstrap page with the service, but all of the JavaScript that it references was deployed on S3, which mm. means once we had the bootstrap file in place, we could fetch, we could replace the app on the fly without touching the, the service server. Right. Um, still, as long as you can only get the bootstrap file from one place, you... It really kind of amplifies the idea that a service is just the back half of an app. Mm -hmm. But with cores, we can split those apart. So you could, for instance, say, uh, here's you know 10 applications, and they use 20 different services. Like a, a good particular example might be um, some kind of authentication service, right? I want to I want to have a single authentication service that's used across a whole bunch of um, a whole bunch of uh, applications sure and I don't want to have to tie that into every different service that I talk to um, so ultimately with cores you can start to enable that sort of functionality and that really does split the two apart so then uh, so what we're intending right is that in development if cores was on um, it would just whitelist everyone so you know you wouldn't have to worry about this issue or you could control the whitelist if you didn't want it to be everyone right and then in production Obviously, we would it, it would be um, it'd be off by default, and you would have to whitelist specific origins. And anyone who either wasn't on the list or didn't comply with um, uh, with the core standard 
uh, would would just uh, get a security uh, you know a rejection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the so the interesting thing about cores is it really does break the two in half and say you can build applications that are completely independent of services uh, at the domain level and you just tie them together however you want. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. Indeed, it's uh, you know I, it's unfortunate that we didn't get it in completely for Closure West. Um, the reason is uh, just worth mentioning the 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 one um, so the core standard is is easy to implement and browsers have wide supports for, uh, but the server set event standard does not specify the use of cores, and so. Um, mm. A lot of cores, you know, the cores implementations in browsers, or I'm sorry, the SSE implementations in browsers don't use it. Um, you can work around that. There, there's a, uh, there are several um, polyfills for event sourcing, and uh, there is one that supports cores. Uh, but the end result was when in implementing that, it uh, it sort of made it clear that um, our service implementation of uh, server set events is not as open and flexible as we would like it. Uh, and so, you know, while we have something working in this, again, this is what's in the core sample. It shows how to do this. Uh, a better answer is um, we got to fix up the SSE implementation a little bit to be more flexible and not have to do one of the things we did in the sample. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's important to note that um, Pedestal is something that we're doing and we, we're announcing it at Closure West, but that's just milestone one on the road for this thing that, you know, we're, we're using it going forward and, there's a lot more to come. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, dude, I think we could talk about this for <laughs> a lot longer, but I feel like maybe we should, you know, try to wind down, give people's ears a break. There, there's one more thing that I really want to ask you about, though, which is, um, which is the name Pedestal. Yeah. So, um, so where, where did it come from? Um, so we needed a project name. Um, I have a background uh, from when I first went to college in um, in architecture, not not systems architecture, but building architecture. And so, um, in looking for possible uh, themes for for project names, because pedestal is not the only thing that we have up our sleeves. Um, you know, I, I uh, had a there were a bunch of ideas, and one that we ended up settling on was um, was the classic orders from. Um, uh, well, from classical architecture, right? And uh, so, if you were to look at the the layout of a, a classical building uh, from from uh, Greece or Rome, uh, you know, well, <laughs> actually, you wouldn't look back that far, right? Because the pedestal upon which the column stands was not uh, was not introduced till later. Um, but the point is, mm -hmm. pedestals near the bottom, and it's a solid foundation to build on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have specifically chosen to um, pull some things back from a feature perspective in order to make sure that the stuff that we are um, uh, delivering is is good and solid. Um, I'm sure you're eminently familiar with uh, the phrasing of uh, Vitruvius, uh, firmitas utilitas venustus, which uh, is uh, strong, useful, and beautiful. Yeah, I have so, that tattooed on my um, on my knuckles, like a prison tattoo. <laughs> well, you'll have to use the, your your toes, knuckles too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so uh, you know, we're we're trying hard to build uh, you know a good, solid underlying base to um, to build awesome stuff on top of. Yeah, that's where the name came from. Cool, I like it a lot. <laughs> and there was much uh, 
much thought and debate put into it. I'm glad we landed there. <laughs> well, there's a lot of thought and debate put into <laughs> using other names. Yeah. And the conclusion of that effort was, uh, yeah, we should just use that one. So right. uh, I can't complain. I got to say, uh, well, this will come out after Closure West, but I, having spent uh, as much time and effort as I have on it, it's hard to imagine standing up at a conference and calling it anything other than pedestal. <laughs> right. Um, no matter what anyone else said I needed to call it. <laughs> right, right. Well, um, Tim, I, I have to have you back on the show because, you know, you and I have 15 years worth of conversations like this to explore. And actually, we had <laughs> we had a podcast at one point that we sort of started, did about three or four episodes and then fell off. So I'd love to go back and, and do some more with you. Um, but before we wind down, and I'll, and I'll warn you right now, Tim, I'm going to ask you about another song in a minute here. Um <laughs> Give you the heads up. Yeah. Um, you could always use your other choice in the beginning, but we'll see in a minute. But um, before we do wind down, I want to make sure I give you a chance um, to mention anything that we didn't talk about that you want to make sure that we tell our listeners. Uh, not that I can think of. Okay. It's been a lot of fun. I, I would definitely like to do it again. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll for sure have you back on. That's no question. I mean, I, you know, Tim, I, Tim, you've been on my short list in this, for the show forever. And Pedestal was just an excuse to have you on, but it's certainly not the only thing I want to talk to you about. All right. Well, awesome. Well, thanks a ton for coming on and explaining this. I'm so excited about about Pedestal. I just think, um, you know, I mean, of course, you know, it's. I think it's going to take a little while for people to absorb, but I have gotten an advanced look at it, and I kind of feel like, well, after people do start to see um, what we've done, that that they're going to be excited too, and I think that's that's really cool. Um, awesome. Yeah. So, uh, so I uh, I do have to ask you, like I said, for another song. Uh, what do you want? What do you want to play on the way out here? Also, uh, I read the Bruce biography over uh, over Christmas, so um, we should go with uh, Blinded by the Light off uh, Greetings from Raspberry Park. All right, very good. It's coming up right now. Well, Tim, once again, thank you very, very much for taking time out, especially because, you know, um, things are busy for you, especially on a Friday where, as you say, you're coordinating lots of work here. We've got only a very short time left for Closure West. You're working really hard. Thanks a ton for, for coming on and talking to me. Thank you. All right. And I will also thank our listeners. It's always been great to have you. Appreciate you listening. This has been Think Relevance, the podcast. In the dumps with the mumps is the adolescent pumps is way into his hat. With a boulder on my shoulder, feeling kind of older, I trip the merry-go-round. With this very unpleasing sneezing and wheezing, the calliope crashed to the ground. Some old hot hat shot was it for a hot spot, snapping his fingers, clapping his hands. And some flesh white mascot was tied to a lover's knot with a whatnot in her hand. And now young Scott with a slingshot finally found a tender spot and throws his lover in the sand. Thank <laughs> you.